Happy New Year. Welcome back to Poet in Bangkok. I am Donald Quist. And I'm Colin Chaney. Every episode, we hear the stories of comic book creators, poets, librarians, musicians, and painters. And Colin and I try to piece together a larger story about making art between Thailand and the USA in the shadow of alien urban flowers, thuggish demagogues, UFO crashes, and the increasingly macabre Harbinger 2 mission on Mars. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview with expressionist painter Chris Coles at Brainwake Cafe in Bangkok. Chris talks about his choice to reject realism in order to better capture the ugly, primal truth of the Bangkok nightlife and the human condition. He shares his thoughts on the role of fine arts in Thailand, how it is intrinsically different than in the West, and why his work disrupts some of the narratives propagated by the nation's upper class. Chris discusses the origins of Bangkok Noir, an expatriate art movement popular around the globe. And while reflecting on the darker aspects of life in Southeast Asia, he recalls the violence during Bangkok's political unrest in 2010. Chris also takes time to describe how the sobering green marshes of Maine resemble the discombobulating neon-lit bars of Bangkok's sex tourism industry. If you didn't check out our previous episode, uh, episode 12, uh, called Anything Can Happen, Colin announced that he'd be moving to Maine, leaving me, <laughs> uh, but resettling Sorry, with his family in the USA. So how goes it, Colin? How has the transition been so far? Uh, where are you? Well, yeah, so I'm here in Maine, and I'm uh, sitting at a desk in the mostly unheated part of my uh, parents-in-law's house. I'm looking out at a their garden and the fields beyond, which they lease out to a community-supported agriculture. So the snow, because everything's covered in snow, is uh, all furrowed. Where I, I shit you not... I saw, just before we started recording, a, a fox running across the snowy field. So just to, just keeping it real, just keeping it real rural stereotype of Maine. So here. quaint. What type of what 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 type of fox is this? I don't know. He was sort of he had a big, he had a big bushy tail. Earlier this morning, oh. actually, I was walking up the road with my son. I'd bundled him all up in this Yeti or Ewok snuggly suit and. We were turning up this road, and these two these two foxes. I never seen. I don't think I've ever seen a fox before in Maine. I, I spent a lot of time growing up here, but I don't think I've ever seen a fox before. Uh, the, these two foxes just ran up the road, which is aptly called uh, Fox Hill Road. So they were just uh, kind of they were kind just, of on the nose. They were just yeah, it, was, it was a little on the nose. It was a little <laughs> on the nose. If this wasn't an entirely non-fictional podcast, um, I might have edited that. But uh, so yeah, so. Um, I'm here in America, and I was, I've reflected that right before we left, the weekend before we flew out of Bangkok, our movers had come, and we packed away all our, all our stuff, and that was a disorienting experience. But then we went, down to, we went down to Phuket, where some friends of ours, a German-Canadian couple who, uh, who live in Amsterdam now, they, they built a little house outside this Muslim fishing village. Uh, just north of Phuket, uh, right on right on the ocean, and this was an area that had just gotten utterly devastated by the tsunami and the Boxing Day tsunami in 2006. And we spent we spent the weekend there with those friends and and our friend Riga, and just our kids running around 
naked in the in the ocean and there was no you know no one around and just this totally idyllic thing we're just and then a week later we're all walking through snowdrifts <laughs> and slush <laughs> and it was oh. really real but weirdly mm. like we were there and we we talk mostly on the the podcast about how you know so the buck rock is only like an urban phenomena but like of course like it's everywhere and it was like washing up yeah. on the shores and I've seen it. I've seen it here as well. It's around town a little bit. Not it's, for some reason in cities, it's it seems to be worse. But I've seen it like yeah. you know washing up with the seaweed. It's very beautiful and against the like the snow and the ice and the dark blue. It, you still, know, is it still vibrant? I like it. Yeah, is it's here. still. Yeah, like, yeah. That's the weird thing. Like huh. it doesn't. Yeah, it seems to obey different biological and physical chemical principles because it's still flowering <laughs> actually in a weird way. That's or it threatens that that contrast that Chris Coles, the American painter uh, talked about in terms of the difference between painting Bangkok and painting Maine who knows with the buckrock maybe painting Maine soon will just be as technicolor as uh, <laughs> as, as painting the Bangkok nightlife but yeah it's been but the transition's been it's been it's it's been good I mean like good to see family and fun to be here at the holidays but it's it's uh, I'm allergic to New England like actually physically <laughs> allergic um, and so I'm just sneezing a great deal and on great many antihistamines and I'm definitely keeping, um, I've had little moments where d- I've sort of been feel, felt kind of dipping into, um, let's just call them symptoms, like de- depressive symptoms. Mm. And uh, so I'm trying to keep an eye on that. Um, yeah. But definitely like, you know, I try, but I try to focus more on like the fox, foxes, the, you know, wind in the trees, the quiet, the, 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 the town seems to be lousy with blue jays for some reason so i'm really like i'm just interested to just be back in this environment be reminded of of this landscape after being in an, yeah. in a foreign one yeah and tell me so what's going on in america like what what's happening outside of your town i guess just anecdotally what the the, the glimpses of what's happening in america i was my daughter's at a new daycare and picking her up the other day and there's this little kid running around in this cute cute red t-shirt that said uh future president on it and had a little picture of george washington oh, cool. and he was running around and then as he was sort of bonking around he sort of noticed people were, or i and then i was looking at him and the teacher was looking at him he just started saying i'm donald trump i'm donald trump oh. and the teacher <laughs> teacher was just like no you're not and he's like yes i am yes i am i'm not a girl and oh. we were just we <laughs> the teacher and I both were at sort of a moment of like uh-huh. Okay. She said, "Yeah, like since, you know, since the campaign, like they they like they have like a dress-up corner and one of the things is like a blue blazer and like the different kids have been putting on saying, like, yeah, like I'm Donald Trump." Um, so I'm not sure I'm oh, not sure what whoa. that means, but then on the I was on the street with my wife we were going for a walk and we ran into a uh, elderly neighbor who lives next door and she was wearing snow pants and she had sneakers on and like these like little rubber treads on over top i'm just like the little details of things we don't have in bangkok (laughs) jump out at me and she was taking a little um a little like recycled uh plastic cup full of uh organic sesame seeds to the neighbor's chickens who she was looking after but we ran into her and and she was sort of lamenting what's been happening with the trump election and then but then she sort of paused and she was like she's like honestly though I think I think it's a gift from God because huh? it's waking people up. She's like mm-hmm. I'm just noticing a lot of people who are like very apathetic are just like now awake to the situation. And I'm not going to go as far as saying 
it's a gift from God, but I think that is a, a very, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting read on it. Um, I'm feeling a little sequestered. I feel like a little bit in New England, unless you have a job and maybe if you don't have kids, you go out into the world and interact with people, but without a job yet and with kids, I was spending mm-hmm. a lot of time inside because it's damn cold outside. So I feel like I'm not interacting with that many other human beings. Um, so maybe I'll start having some conversations and be a better forward correspondent. Uh, <laughs> but well, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the question back at you. What's what's been happening in, in Thailand since since I left? I did read, and I think it was ma- basically because you posted it. Government announced that there's going to be no elections this year. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And in other news, the sky's blue. Um, <laughs> so this. <laughs> um, so it was announced that uh, there will be no elections this year. I actually forgot to mention it to you <laughs> because when it was announced, there was no real reaction. Um, Everybody was like, "Yep." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I look at my wife. I look at my father-in-law. You know, I I open up the paper. I'm like, hey, this is this is not going to be elections this year. And they're like, oh, there were going to be elections this year. The narrative being given is that um, it is to show respect during this period of transition as King Rama the tenth ascends the throne. Yep. However, uh, a lot of people that I speak to. Never really expected the elections to come that were promised. That were promised anyway. So, I I I do think it might it is probably for the best that there is not um, there's not an election this year. Because look Just look with. look what happens when you have an election, man. Then exactly. you have exactly you can't you, can't. you have this fucking country. <laughs> You can't really. I don't know. Sometimes people can't be trusted, and I don't want to. We talked about no, this. No, we in, talked about this last uh, time. the last episode. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you, your your anger with how people vote makes you start to, you know, almost hope for a type of corruption that favors your ideals yeah. and your side. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just yeah. trying to stay open-minded. Okay. Um, I guess. Oh, I guess the the most important question is how is the uh, how is my buckruck doing? How is my little? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is 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 Pete okay with it? I know she was a little, she was a little. She's uncertain nervous. Now. Yeah. She's nervous. My dog is very uh, wary of it. Um, really? Yeah. My dog is like this. Belongs outside. I see these outside. They shouldn't be inside the house. Um, I've had to push him back and try to get him not to, to he barks at it and i don't know why it's kind of strange but it it is thriving um he's like get plant. this get this alien out of my house <laughs> he knows he's like what is this he does, does he try not, to pee he, on it or whatever he's too scared to pee at okay i'll yeah. pee on it he just barks at it and now we've got him to stop barking but he just eyes it sometimes he just sits there and stares at it yeah, yeah maybe he maybe he knows something i don't know yeah. right yeah. but he he your plant is thriving, and so are the buckrock around the city. In fact, civilian gardening mobs in black have sprung up, and they're roaming around the city, clearing overgrown oh, areas. Oh, really? That's interesting. They're, everybody agrees they're doing a public service because the government seems set on ignoring... Ignoring that it's going on. Ignoring, like, pretending nothing's happening. That your city's all. being over, and this, over, overgrown. <laughs> right. And this, this, actually, this actually ties into, you know, the interview that people are about to hear in a, 
uh, a little bit. Uh, Chris talks about this too. This this idea, this this tendency to ignore uh, right. blatant things. So I, I found I'm looking at these mobs. It made me. It really made me think a lot about some of Chris's yeah Chris's comments. And some, I guess, a lot of things have been going on just globally. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty. It was. Yeah. I mean, this is our sort of, I guess, our New Year's episode, and it was a it was a rough. Yeah. <laughs> it was a rough end of the year. I mean, the yeah. putting aside all of the, the the Trump nonsense, there's been just celebrity death upon celebrity death at the end yeah. of the year. The bombing in Turkey. And then in the midst, midst of all that, the uh, ISEC announced that, that, you know, surprise announcement that Captain Shepard, Shep, and the Harbinger 2 crew are en route back from Mars on the yeah. Harbinger 2 and are, are supposed to, they said, to reach orbit. Last I read, they're going to reach orbit sometime in, in late winter, early spring. I yeah. guess there's, I guess the planets were aligned in that way where it would take only five months and not 10 months to get back. But um, I mean, there's so much that we're obviously not being told just a- after months of silence, this <laughs> announcement, and it just gets slipped out completely, completely like just swallowed up in the death of Carrie Fisher and, and Debbie Reynolds. Do you think it that they, just, do you think that they wanted it to be swallowed up or do you think they actually want, cause I'm, it's actually like a pretty big, deal and it's going to be pretty amazing when deal. when you know when Shep then when Shep comes back and when the the Harbinger True crew gets back though there're going to be a lot of there're going to be a lot of questions but it's going to be a pretty huge thing no one's ever <laughs> no one's ever come back from from Mars before since from Mars you know, before since any of the any of the missions or the terraforming began so it's a very big deal and I'm I'm super nervous about it I'm really really freaked out actually I I told you like a just a few months ago, I have a friend that I met. Oh yeah, you're, he's you're Aust- Aust- yeah he's my Australian friend. Right. We'll call him we'll call him Joe. But yeah, Joe showed me this footage. Um, he showed me this footage that I should not have seen, and it looked just like Shep, Captain Shepard, speaking similarly to the way many people on Earth were those who suffered from the Martian aphasia. Right. It sounded just like that and he was moving in a very strange way and i just find it i i personally have a lot of questions so while i'm i am curious to have him return and maybe get some of these questions answered i'm kind it's i'm nervous i i'm i'm nervous about what this all could mean how are they getting back so fast what and then on top of yeah. All of this um, just slipped in again. Um, did you read about uh, Drew Sutton? He wrote he wrote an article yeah. about the garden. No, I did. I did read that. Yeah, uh, right after. Yeah. yeah, like on. Yeah, just and it talks about how uh, Dr. Pym she reported the hacking at the Mexican embassy. Like, I guess. I guess the point of of the article was that Dr. Pym, this Isaac employee whistleblower who outed the the murder by the sky transmission is still in hiding in in the embassy in the Mexican embassy in Paris. She's like somebody's still trying to like get into her computer <laughs> and I guess like had to hack through the Mexican embassy firewalls and other technical things uh, in order to get to that. <laughs> 
another tactical thing. Yeah. And etc. Yeah. Insert um, insert techno babble here as the, exactly. as a Star Trek script would would say in the form. <laughs> <laughs> but it's obvious um in the in the in the uh, article it says uh you know Pym revealed that right. she has been in correspondence this whole time with Dr. Wells Clark on Mars and that yeah. Dr. Wells Clark sent her I think it was quote disconcerting footage of Shep which which and, yeah we sounded pr- pretty similar to the the footage that your that Joe the Aussie um described cuz I, I guess you were a little I mean you 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 liked him and you or like him you still like him but you you trusted him but you were a little uncertain when we talked about it last you were a little uncertain whether it was real or uh yeah you know like it would have been hard to fake but it does seem like it does it does strike me that that may I don't know maybe the reason that that people are kind of or that Isaac was downplaying it is that basically since the whales hit the atmosphere and broke up and like other than the the buckrock the alien plants you know spreading you know mostly harmlessly though I guess like there's some been like some problems with like railways and and some industry some power plants and stuff that have had had problems with it other than that and the the martian aphasia there seems to be no impact from the martian invasion <laughs> right right so i don't know i guess this is the so people they're you know i don't know i don't know how, what sort of decontamination they're going to send these guys through um before they have the ticker tape parade <laughs> down sukumwit road or maybe down fox hill right. road in, uh, in Freeport. all right I mean, having suffered from generalized anxiety disorder myself, I know to to not uh, poke with too much rationality at at the sources of anxiety. But you're saying like all this stuff with the Harbinger Two is making you really anxious. Why do you have a sense of like why it's making you anxious? Does it have to do with like that you'd gone through the Martian aphasia and like came out of that, or what? Do you know, you know why that is, or just because you're like a real fan of the Harbinger Two mission and don't want it to lead to the apocalypse? <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, I suppose. Um, yeah, as I don't know, there's, there's, I'm, in in this new world that we find ourselves, it's kind of hard to explain away some of your anxiety to say that this, it's irrational for me to fear this because this can't happen. Now it seems like anything can happen. And so I'm worried about Martian aphasia coming back. I don't know mm-hmm. why that would be connected right. to right, Shep, right. Yeah, yeah. there's no reason why it couldn't, to be honest. In this new world that we find ourselves, anything is possible. Yeah, totally. Um, so a couple, a couple weeks before I left Bangkok, Donald and I got a chance to interview the American uh, painter Chris Coles at Brainweight Cafe in, in Bangkok, a really cool cafe and gallery off of Sukhumwit. As, as Chris pointed out in the interview, it's a very sort of residential area, but one of the things he loved about Bangkok is that it's in this sort of very residential area, but like super nearby is a street full of, what, what, are, we, what are we calling them? Go-go bars? Is that the, is that the right word for them? Uh, yeah. Full of the spectacle of what Chris Coles calls the the Bangkok night. It was a really interesting interview, and we had a lot of fun. He's an extremely intelligent um, guy and has lived a really interesting life. Was in the film industry in the U.S. for a while, worked on a lot of big budget films, including a small art film very close to my heart, uh, Superman, with Christopher Reeve. 
um, if you haven't seen it, you could find it probably in a small art house showing somewhere. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was very interesting to hear about his paintings and the origins of his paintings and how he came to Bangkok. And he's got a very well-considered theory of the, the Bangkok noir and uh, the Bangkok night. Um, and I found, again, just personally, it was interesting to be talking to somebody who was born and raised in Maine. And the coast of Maine, he, he grew up about... 10 miles, 5 miles from where I'm sitting right now. Um, really? Okay. And, uh, I didn't know it was that close. Yeah, so hearing his yeah. reflections on the differences between you know, the culture and the colors and the subjects um, in, in painting Bangkok and in, in, if you, when you, uh, in, in painting Maine, I found that very just helpful in my own sort of transition and thinking about the transition. I found his thoughts about the primordial, about how when you look in a, in a Maine tide pool or when you go inside one of those go-go bars uh, in Bangkok, you get a glimpse into something very fundamental about, uh, about life on this planet. So without further ado, let's, wherever we are, whether we're staring out at a field of foxes uh, running across snowy fields, or sitting in a go-go bar trying to listen to this through your headphones, uh, let's <laughs> listen to uh, the artist Chris Coles talk about the Bangkok night and Bangkok Noir. You know, I think a lot of, uh, when you're out in the Bangkok night, uh, some of the attraction, you know, the human animal, I think is kind of primitive. You know, I think we, we have DNA. Our DNA basically goes back to the beginning of time. And I think there's, there's DNA of bugs, reptiles, amoebas, kind of some mixed in with our DNA. And I think the human animal, no matter how educated they get and civilized, every once in a while the human animal wants, like his DNA is calling, you know, come back to the muck, you know, come back to the primordial slime, you know. And, and that's why Pat Pong which is the worst, well, not the worst, but one of the, certainly the worst expat area for Bangkok night is quite low level. Uh, and mainly for tourists who don't know anything, who go there thinking that they're going to see what all the excitement's about, but actually they end up seeing kind of a primordial swamp. And the DNA gets there, and it's kind of happy. You know, it feels, you know, it remembers something about the past from millions of years ago. And, and a lot of it's visual, like just the kind of chaos and density and all the tourists that a lot of these kind of really unattractive European tourists, like way overweight, you know, the wife may be way overweight, kind of like bumping around with these like Asian guys trying to sell them watches and counterfeit Viagra and stuff. So there's, there's that visual outside stuff. And then there's the audio stuff of all the soundtracks coming out of the bars and also a lot of the selling booths have soundtracks. But there's also a general ambiance there's the kind of a level of like human interactivity, talking, chatting, noise, traffic, you know, plus the music all just blending them together. Because I think, for instance, you've been to Soy Cowboy probably, which is sort of uh, a street that more or less works in terms of visual show business. It has wonderful neon signs. It has lights all the way along. It's got outside cafes, so there's a lot of human activity outside of people just chatting. And then it has all the hello girls who are kind of dressed in different costumes as you walk along, kind of like doing funny things and theatrical kind of things. So you can sit 
at an outside cafe of Soy Cowboy and just soak in the scene. And a lot of what you're soaking in is the ambiance because the sound is bouncing off that canyon, you know. And somehow as a human, uh, you're in a social ambiance, you feel comfortable somehow. You know, there's, some, there's something we need as, as opposed to just being alone on a rock, you know, an outward bound guy up off Hurricane Island surviving your 24 hours on some isolated rock with like no sound except the sea and birds and stuff. I'm going to take you back a little bit. Could you talk a little bit about just where you come from? I think part of the reason why I, I'm interested in the Bangkok night and painted as opposed to Thai artists, who, who almost no Thai artist paints the Bangkok night, is because I grew up on the coast of Maine where there's no nightlife whatsoever. This be, I mean, there might be a bar. The color palette on the coast of Maine, which is, the coast of Maine is quite beautiful in a deep kind of way. But the color palette in the winter is basically gray, black, and white. And uh, could, could use a little neon. <laughs> not much neon. And the color palette in the summer is green, bluish green, dark green, yellowish green, uh, gray for the rocks, brown for the seaweed, and kind of a darkish blue ocean. And then uh, various blue shades to the sky with the occasional show business coming from cloud formations and sun sunlight patterns and also from storms you know the, i say the visual highlight to a main uh, summer is like a hurricane when you have tremendous waves and tremendous wind so it's like it's so, so contrasted to southeast asia and so contrasted to the spectacle of the bangkok night and i use the bangkok night as kind of a metaphor for Pattaya, Pat, uh, Phuket, you know, Hatyai, you know, the, show, the night spectacle that goes on all over Thailand, but also goes on in, at smaller levels in Phnom Penh and Saigon and Singapore and even in Jakarta, which is a Muslim city. You know, it's a Southeast Asian spectacle, which is in very sharp contrast to, to uh, Northern Europe or Northern Maine. You, you speak so sensitively about, about color and the way you're describing Maine in those two seasons, and, and uh, I'm about to move there, so it's interesting to kind of hear that place described in that way. But were, were your parents or were there, were there artists in your family? Was, was art something that you grew up exposed to and talking about? Uh, my grandmother, who was a doctor, was an artist in her, as a hobby, and quite a good one. And her three daughters, my mother and her two sisters, were all artists, designers. One aunt was a, a book illustrator, professional book illustrator. One was a graphic designer in Chicago. And my mother was a, a fine artist and sold, you know, hundreds of paintings just in Maine, you know, was not, not known outside of Maine. What was her subject? Her subject was, you know, the coast of Maine, you know, nature. You know, a lot of artists have lived on the coast of Maine and live there today because one is quite inexpensive and two, there's a tremendous aesthetic to the coast of Maine. And so they end up painting the rocks, the fishermen, lobster boats, seagulls. And all that stuff's been painted like 25,000 times by now. So I don't find most artists, what they're doing on the coast of Maine, I don't find very interesting because it's sort of kind of repetitive art. You know, my favorite coast of Maine artist by far is Marston Hartley, who spent years in Berlin in the 1930s and painted expressionist paintings of Berlin nightlife and was friends with the famous German expressionist Otto Dix. George Grotz, uh, Kirchner, you know, who are my idols. That's my favorite. You know, my painting is basically German expressionist style. 
And then he came back to Maine with the, when the Nazis came into power around the late 30s, I think, then settled on the coast of Maine. You know, he started drawing rocks and fishermen too, but he drew them in the expressionist style. And his paintings are really, really interesting, I think, you know, because he kind of distorts the coast of Maine, and you see it in a way you don't normally. They're, they're wonderful paintings. They're, not, they're, they're, they're of people, and they, they're evocative of the people on the coast of Maine, but they're not realist paintings like Andrew Wyeth. I mean, Andrew Wyeth was a tremendous technician, but I find his paintings kind of boring. They're sort of predictable and boring. Now, as a kid growing up on the coast of Maine, I actually knew quite a few artists, because the artists who lived there. I knew Andrew Wyeth. I knew Stephen Etnir, who used to live 10 miles from my house. I knew uh, William Thawne, who lived in Port Clyde. Was, and all of these guys were pretty well-known artists. They had shows in New York. They sold paintings all over the world. They made you know, millions of dollars with their paintings. And so, you know, I went to a high school mainly with uh, ordinary people. Most of them didn't even go to college. There's a nice little college in the town called Bowdoin College. So there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, faculty and the faculty kids uh, and stuff going out of the college, like classical music concerts and stuff. So you get a tiny bit of a, a non-rural state culture going on. But I don't know why exactly. Uh, when I finished high school, I was 17. And the, the day after I graduated from high school, I had $200. I bought a $99 bus ticket to California, to Los Angeles, and arrived in Los Angeles with about $120 in my pocket, and got a job in a Mexican fast food restaurant. And I don't know why I did that, even today, but there was something about, there's something about the coast of Maine and how it's sort of organized and nice and quiet that I desperately needed to get away from. <laughs> and Southeast Asia, you know, at first it was, you know, I went to California, then I went to Hawaii, then I went to Australia, then I went back to university in the U.S. After university, I got a Watson Fellowship, went to Africa, then I was in Europe. Finally, I went back. I went to film school in Europe and started working in the movie business on a big film in New York called Superman One. So I was in New York. And then I went to L.A. because that's where the film business is really based and, and lived on you know, a nice beach house in Santa Monica, California, which is like really a nice place. Had a Mercedes, had a movie star girlfriend, had my name on big movies, TV series. And then I discovered Southeast Asia, the last movie I worked on. And I said, wow, you know, that's, that's, that's why I wanted to get out of that little town in Maine, Southeast Asia. Because <laughs> it's the, not only is it 12 hour time difference, it's the exact opposite point in the world from the coast of Maine. Yeah. And everything about it is the exact opposite. I first came here doing a big movie in the mid 90s and had never been in Asia before, ever. And I remember the first night, I, or we were filming down in Phuket, and I had to fly up to Bangkok for business, and one of the Thai guys took me out of the Bangkok night for my very first time at the Bangkok night. But, you know, I'd been in the movie business for 20, 25 years and gone to film school, and, you know, what struck me when I first saw it was that it was a, a huge spectacle. It was just a gigantic spectacle. It went across miles and miles of this really huge Asian city, this night spectacle. And it involved people from all over the world, all over Asia, all over Thailand, either as buyers or as sellers or as intermediaries, staff. And I, I saw it, I said, wow, this is like the world's biggest Cecil B. DeMille movie. You know, like a movie sells tickets. Well, the Bangkok Night sells billions. It sells, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, I began to look at it, you know, from the movie point of view and kind of deconstruct it. And so you look at the, the stage, the settings, the costumes, the actors, 
you know, the makeup, the hair, the, uh, the walk-on cast who are the buyers. The, uh, and I began to, uh, I wasn't really painting then. You know, I'd always drawn as a hobby, but I wasn't really painting. I was just interested in this huge spectacle. Beauty? You you obviously find beauty in this in this scene. Yeah. The Bangkok night it functions at different levels. One, it's like a huge budget movie. It's like the world's largest budget movie. You know, like a 1930s Hollywood musical with a limited budget. You know, you remember those scenes where like 5,000 dancing girls would come down the steps and do formation dancing. Fred and Ginger would pop out and kind of go zooming around, and everyone has nice costumes and there's lighting and there's music and it's kind of. You know, it's seductive and it's sexual, but in a really Walt Disney kind of a, almost like sex is harmless way. So just transfer that idea to the Bangkok night, you know, and give it an edge, you know. Ginger Rogers is now an Isan girl with a sixth grade education, you know. And she's wearing like 20 inch high heels dancing next to a huge fat expat guy from Germany, you know, who stumbled over himself blind drunk. And so it's the same spectacle, but with a different script. There's the level of the actual people involved. You know, you know, I've been painting the Bangkok night now for, you know, say 15 years. And I know a lot of people for 10 years, maybe even longer. I know the whole arc of their career in the Bangkok night. You know, owners, managers, staff, and also uh, sex workers. So I know them well. And sometimes in the paintings, I try to capture what's really going on inside them. So although the painting is expressionist style with distorted black lines and weird colors... You know, I'm not interested in the surface reality because the surface reality in Thailand, we all know what that is. Chris is smiling here with a, it's a big smile, lots of teeth. It's basically just marketing, especially when you get to the night. It's just marketing. That illusion or that, that call that brings people here. I'm just curious, your, your sense, having, having lived here for a while and having painted uh, those ecologies, right? Uh, those, those places where the illusion comes in being. Where did that illusion come from here, as far as you understand it? When did it kind of take form, or what was the earliest form it, it took here? You know, what, what we see in Pat Pong or what we see in Soy Cowboy, that environment. Like, where did that, where did that come from, do you think, here? The history of Thailand, if you look back, when the Persians first arrived here in 1400, if you read some of their journals, it was exactly the same. You know, their boat pulled up on the shore in Ayutthaya, and the... And the some Thai intermediary guy said, oh, you're finally here. You're such handsome men. Oh, you know. And then like 10 girls with cute, with little high cheekbones and wonderful little smiles, like appeared magically smiling at the Persian traders. You know, and it's always been here. It's always been here. So, so even, even, even back to Ayutthaya, that was, that was before. It's been, it's just part of their history. I don't think they've ever had monogamous marriage in Thailand. Men are always expected to fool around. Men are always expected to chase girls. Girls are always expected to get something out of the men in exchange for being chased. Thailand's always had music. It's always had decoration. It's always had costumes. It's always had, you know, brilliant use of color. You know, if you look at the temples in, in Sukhothai, they go way back. You know, the statues are visually brilliant. You know, the colors, the paintings of the temples, you know, Thais are visually talented people. The whole history of Southeast Asia is an intermingling of cultures, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, animist, you know, the intermingling of Northeast Asia, Korea, Japan, China, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Philippines, South Asia, India, Central Asia, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan. 
uh, Arab traders were coming here 2,000 years ago in fleets of, a, you know, a thousand ships, apparently. So I think it's always been a crossroads. It's always been a fantastic kind of commingling of cultures, religions, people, customs, music, dancing, art. Part of it, when I was first painting, uh, you know, I used to draw faces, kind of realistic style faces. There's one actually in here on the wall. You can see it through the window there, that Isan face. It's sort of an Indian style face with a narrow face and a longish nose because a lot of Thais are a little bit Indian because all of Northeast Thailand used to be Hindu. And so the reason I was interested in faces here is because you see so many different kinds of faces because the genetic diversity in Bangkok is so total. There have been so many people here and they've all, you know, they've been having so much, you know, DNA exchange. <laughs> yeah, so I was, I did a lot of faces, maybe a hundred faces just because I was interested. And that face, you know, I thought, oh, it's interesting because it's so Indian. You know, and, and you ask him, he says, I said, are you Hindu? He said, I'm Buddhist. And, and I said, well, where are you from? Oh, Northeast Thailand, Isan. I said, do you know that area all, all used to be Hindu? He says, oh, no, 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 it's Buddhist. Because Thais don't know their own history. So you can tell a Thai, they look Indian, but they'll take it as an insult because they're sort of racist about Indians in Thailand, which is bizarre because half the culture comes from India and half of Thais look like they're part Indian. <laughs> I've been with an Indian worth $20 million. They won't let them walk into a bar, which I just find shocking. I know in earlier interviews, you've talked about how you're not really a big fan of realism. And so I noticed also, just listening to you talk, you've done a lot of research about the, your subjects. You know a lot of this about the culture and you've gotten to know these people. Getting all of this concrete realism um, in this sense, and then choosing an expressionist art style, which is sort of like a rejection from the idea that there's one subjective truth. Why did you choose the expressionist style? The individual girl I paint. You know, if you paint the realist style, you're painting the surface in my mind. You're painting her marketing smile, you know, her slim body, her uh, costume, and you're not getting to what's really going on with the girl. I used to go to a, when I started painting expressionist style paintings instead of just doing the, the portraits which are sort of realistic. I used to go to a Mama-san and Pat Pong. Pat Pong in the old days was like the hot area and the hot bar used to be Thai bar, Thai bar 30 years ago and it's one of the first bars when you go into Pat Pong and so the same manager who's also called a Mama-san has been working there for 30 years and so I, I would go in and I'd show her my paintings because she had seen everything. I mean in 30 years she's she saw, you know, 500 guys a night, seven nights a week, just say 3,000 guys a week, 50 weeks a year. That's like 100, you know, 3, 000, one week is 21,000. No, no, one, yeah, one week's 12,000 a month. That's 150,000 guys a month. Times 10 years is 1.5 million. Times 30 years is like, she's seen four and a half million guys walk into her <laughs> bar, you know? And plus all the girls that kind of go through the bar like an endless river. So I would show her my paintings. And uh, sometimes she would say, oh, Chris, this was no good. And, and I'd say, why? She says, oh, it's too sentimental. You have to, real, you have to realize what's going on in this bar. You know, you have to realize. And, and, and you know, if you really want to paint it, get rid of the sentimental. Because it it's not sentimental. It's business. And it's, and it's not a nice business. When you get down to it, you know, from the selling side, it's not a nice business, you know. There are girls who work in this bar who had sex with 6,000 guys over 20 years. Every kind of guy from everywhere in the world. And yeah, some of them are nice, 
some of them are awful, and everything in between. And she's doing it to earn money for her one or two kids who don't have any alimony or child support her father, who she had when she was a teenager, because Thailand has a really high teenage birth rate. She's doing it to pay the pension for her mom and dad, who are poor farmers who work their whole life, and they have no pension from the government. They have no savings. You know, without her, the money coming from her, this is all they have. She's doing it because she only went to school for six years or eight years, and the best job she can get with that education is a factory of 7-Eleven, which is earning 8,000 baht a month, which is nowhere near enough to pay for her two kids herself and her mom and dad. She's doing it for the money. She's here for the money. And the customer is where the money is, and she'll do what she needs to do to get the money out of the customer to her family. She's not here for fun. She's not here because she likes being here. A lot of them are lesbians. She's not here, you know, uh, because she likes sex. Most of these girls don't even like sex. So you got, if you really want to paint it, paint it real. And so, you know, I would give her more stuff, and she said, yeah, that's it, that's it. And so the expressionist style sort of fit the subject. You know, the reason I started using it is because I had happened to be uh, a fan of expressionist paintings, and I was over in the old Kinokunya bookstore in Emporium 1. In the old days, they had a great art book section. And I was looking at German expressionist paintings, and then I went to meet a famous writer here, Christopher Moore, at a bar, and so I cowboy, and I said to him, I said, wow, you know, some of the paintings from Germany, Berlin, 1930s, it's exactly the same as Soy Nana at 12 o'clock, you know, midnight on a Friday night. It's like, looks identical almost. The people, the way it's set up, the colors. Has anyone ever painted the Bangkok night? And Chris said, I don't, not as far as I know. Any Thai? I've never seen one. So I said, well, I should stop painting portraits and paint the night instead, because no one's doing it, and it's kind of a unique spectacle. So I think when I use the expressionist style, I'm, I'm going down past the surface. And the distortion and the, the distorted colors are getting to what's going on inside the person. And it's funny, you know, I show and, and I give copies of paintings to a lot of the people I paint at the Bangkok night. And whereas sometimes a foreign woman looks at my paintings and says, oh, that's disgusting, it's ugly, whatever. I would say almost no Thai sex worker or night worker has ever looked at my paintings and been shocked or has said, that's disgusting. Usually they say, oh, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly the way, I, you know, the way it is. Could you just describe for us what Bangkok Noir is, as far as you think about it? What is, what is Bangkok Noir? So when I was interested in expressionism in Germany, so I read up on the history of German expressionism. And it turns out it was like four art school students who are basically unemployed artists in Leipzig, you know, in 1904, who were sitting around, how can we sell our paintings, you know? And one of them said, well, why don't we, you know, call ourselves a movement and we'll rent some space in Leipzig and we'll say, you know, this is like the debut of our movement. And then, well, what should we call it? Oh, I'm going to call it this. Why don't we call it that? And one of them said, let's call it the expressionist movement because we're interested in, in not just the surface reality, but the, what's the expressionist reality, which is like the deeper reality. And so, okay, they had an art show called The Expressionist Show. And suddenly the artists who were painting in Berlin and uh, other parts of Germany, they would say to them, well, you know, why don't you be an expressionist too? You're all, we're all part of the expressionist movement. And then suddenly Hitler rose and uh, he banned expressionist art which is probably like the single best thing that ever happened to 
expressionism as an art movement. It got banned, you know, and all the expressionist paintings were hauled out of the museums and burned and destroyed or saved or hidden away. And some of the expressionist artists, like one of my heroes, Emil Nold, was actually told, he, you are forbidden to even paint. And so he spent the war in a closet in northern Germany on a farm, in a windowless closet, painting five by seven inch watercolors where no one could see him painting. So that combination made expressionist art into a major art movement. And I think when you look back on it now, especially what happened afterwards, World War II, and you look at the German Nazi fascist movement, the art movement of their choice was uh, German positive realism, which was like muscly blonde guys looking up at the sun, you know, with a beautiful blonde woman with large breasts, you know, and a baby, and behind them like a wheat field and happy peasants. Not too different than some of the Thai art, actually. Kind of that happy Thai art, you know, happy peasants. And that became the art of fascism. And so the art of totalitarian autocracies became this kind of realist, positivist art. And I think in modern America, say Thomas Kincaid, you know, kind of happy little scenes. You know, actually Thomas Kincaid was an al alcoholic wife beater who committed suicide, but all his art sold like hotcakes and it was all happy art. So, but the expressionists, they kind of saw fascism before it was there. They started painting really ugly in the 20s, even in the 1910s. A lot of them had been in World War I, so they saw it up close and personal in World War I. And if you look at a lot of the paintings they did around 1920, it's a lot of dismembered bodies and stuff in the expressionist paintings. So they saw the ugliness that was coming before anybody else. You, you were, you were t telling us a story about the origin of German, ex German expressionism as a way of talking a little bit about how the Bangkok Noir Collective, so, how do you refer to yourselves? So, so Chris Moore and I, Chris has written about 20 novels set in Bangkok, Southeast Asia, and also now six or seven books of essays, which are quite interesting. And he's very well educated, Oxford, Cambridge, he's a lawyer, you know, not a stupid guy at all, very smart guy. And so he and I were, were sitting together one night, and we said, uh, you know, your, your books, I'm kind of painting them, you know, the characters in your books, and some of the scenes in your books, I'm painting. You know, how do we get this thing to go, you know, go a little bit further than it's going now? Because it's, you know, it's kind of a trend. You know, there's a few more authors. You know, a movie had just come out, I think, Bangkok Dangerous, the first one, not the second one, which is a piece of crap. The original was actually good. And I said, you know, Bangkok Dangerous is similar to what we're doing, kind of edgy, sort of expressionist, you know, a dark view of the Bangkok night. So we were just batting ideas around. And I said, and I, so I told her the story, you know, it's funny how expressionist started. It was just a couple of guys at a bar. I said, let's call it the expressionist movement. So I don't know who came up with the word noir, either him or me, but we sort of agreed, yeah, why don't we, you know, let's call it the Bangkok Noir Movement. And then we started writing articles and blog posts and getting people to recall. And then anybody else who wrote something similar, like Jake Needham or John Burdett, or uh, we'd, we'd put them in the article, like, yeah, one of the Bangkok Noir authors, you know, or the, the filmmaker who did Bangkok Dangerous. So whether you wanted to be in the Bangkok Noir Movement or not, yeah. you, you were in it, man. I think the social context of noir uh, is low education levels, very low income levels, huge income disparity, uh, no rights for ordinary people, uh, no government pensions, uh, a lot of racial discrimination, uh, total impunity at the top, no rule of law, uh, powerful uh, cultures of violence organized violence such as the military and police 
those create the conditions for noir, which is one reason Southeast Asia is such an infinite resource of noir for a writer, for an artist, for a filmmaker, or for musicians like the Krom Music Group. You know, we're all using the raw material. It's like a huge open pit mine of noir material, which is visible. I'm not saying the rest of the world doesn't have noir. Southeast Asian noir, there's a lot of it, and it's visible. You know, it's, this, it's like not a mine underground that you have to crawl through a tunnel to get to. It's like you just go to the edge of the mountain, and there's this huge open pit mine. It's like four miles across, full of noir. And you can just sit there picking away at stones as an artist, as a writer, as a journalist even. You know, Jonathan Head, uh, Dan Rivers, Patrick Wynn. They've done incredible articles about Rohingya trafficking, you know, all these noir things in Southeast Asia. The noir context that we're working out of applies to a whole range of non-Southeast Asian people who come here and notice it and start either writing about it, painting it, doing music with it, somehow using it, transforming it into something else. Instead of just sitting here, going to the beach, consuming girls, you know, what do you do with all this stuff that's in front of you? And so they, that's what they do with it. I noticed the eyes in your paintings. Um, they're often like, uh, they're very narrow and piercing. Yeah, what is the intention behind it? I did a series of paintings called Pat Pong Portraits. And I used to sit in a little cafe coffee shop on Pat Pong One, and I'd order a couple of dinners so I could sit there for a few hours, and uh, right next to the window, and I'd watch the kind of river of, I mean, you want to see bad-looking farangs, you know, go to Pat Pong One. It's the worst collection of farangs you'll ever see. Can you, can you describe that a uh, couple of those characters that you'd see walking by there? Yeah, you know, well, Pat Pong, the expats or anyone who lives in Bangkok almost never goes to Pat Pong. So Pat Pong is inhabited by kind of hustle, Thai hustlers, lady boys, many of whom are past their prime and could never find a Thai client, uh, not very successful female night workers who aren't making much money, and tourists who've never been in Thailand before, maybe never been in Southeast Asia before, who are in Bangkok or Thailand for a week or two. They went down to the beaches. They went up to Chiang Mai. They got three days in Bangkok. They went over to the palace. And then they said, hey, we're in Bangkok. We got to go out and see the Bangkok night. Okay, where is it? Oh, it's Pat Pong, you know, because that's what they've heard. So they're they're the people at Pat Pong, as opposed to anybody who knows anything. (laughs) You know, it's just, you know, the whole thing is just like garbage, basically. And I'm sitting there painting it, you know, because it's kind of a wonderful, colorful stream of garbage. And I called it Pat Pong Portraits. And what I did is I made, you know, I tended to paint everybody from here up. And I made their face look like an African mask. Which I'd known while a lot of the German expressionists and also the French Fauvists and even Picasso and the, and the Matisse Impressionists, a lot of the influence in their paintings is from African mask. Because there was a huge show in Paris around 1880 of one of the first shows ever in Europe of artwork from Africa. And, you know, the French had colonies in West Africa, and someone brought up hundreds of masks from West Africa. And he put them on display in the show. And African masks, you know, at first they were sort of ethnographic art, and now uh, they're art. You know, because, wow, visually they were kind of stunning. You know, Europe was full of, like, classical, romanticist, realistic-style painting. Uh, which is so boring after a while, you know. It's like English aristocrats and their dogs down to the last bit of fur. I mean, 
boring, <laughs> you know. And so artists were looking for something more interesting. And, and the African mask made like just like a nuclear bomb going, going off in the artist scene in Paris. The attraction of African masks artistically was uh, people use the word primitive, which some people get offended by today. But to me, primitive doesn't mean Africa. Primitive means all the way back, you know, our DNA. Yeah. You know, humans didn't drop down from space. Humans go all the way back, you know, and, you know back to cavemen, back to Neanderthal men back to free creatures who weren't really men, back to the creatures that were creatures before other creatures, back to creatures just crawling around in the slime, back to creatures that were just kind of like jellyfish coming up out of the ocean, you know, back to like little amoebas that just kind of like under the microscope are like zooming around doing weird things. Like under the microscope, maybe this little pool of coffee, there's like so many amoebas in there and they're all devouring each other. You ever look at you know those Discovery Channel documentaries? All the little creatures are like eating each other and devouring, or having sex with each other, or replicating. they like, and they'll have sex. The two little creatures, and then boom! Like three minutes later, like five thousand babies pop out, you know, and they all start devouring each other and having sex with each other. And so, I think all of us have DNA that goes all the way back. And I think my theory is like, we're basically reptiles who gradually learn how to walk and talk and wear clothes. So in my paintings, you know, reptiles don't have eyelashes. So in almost all my paintings, yeah. you know, it's like the eyes are reptile eyes. That's because it, everyone's a reptile. It's like, it's like, you're, it's like you're painting our Martian, our Martian invaders, really. It sounds like you spent a lot of time uh, like looking into tide pools. Because what you're describing sounds like a tide pool. You could tie it back to the coast of Maine. You know, uh, it was a time when people didn't care much about salty marshes, saltwater marshes, or mud, or tide pools, or it was just something that needed to be paved over, or dammed, or drained so you could build houses or something. And you know, and then all of a sudden, I don't know when, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, scientists discovered that the source of almost all marine life starts in the mud and the saltwater marshes, and so like they're really important. So the coast of Maine has wonderful saltwater marshes because they're protected now. And I kayak on the coast of Maine, and I often go way at high tide. I'll go up with the tide, way up. And you can go, like where I live in Harpswell, you can go, as one little marsh system, you can go 10 miles inland at high tide. I mean, just way up, almost to where it's their highways, you know. And you better get out before the tide drops, because it's like, it's just nine feet of mud if, you, if you're stuck up there. And then if you look in the water around yourself, it's all like covered with kind of a... You know, there's a kind of a dank slime on the surface of the water, and there's like little creatures swimming around, and there's like little fish eating the little creatures, the little creatures eating each other, and little fish having sex with each other. And, you know, it's basically Pat Pong, only, <laughs> only it's like a saltwater marsh, and it's the source of all life. So that's why I said, oh, so instead of seeing it as something dirty and disgusting, you know, see it as something innately human, which is necessary for human life. It's where humans come from. And, and paint it. Paint it as like an ode to the, the sordid, slimy, primitive DNA. And I think in Pat Pong portraits, you know, I think that's, that's what I was trying to get at, that primitive, just totally primitive humanity. So I'm, I'm about to move back to Maine and moving back to a, an area of Maine that where there's 
different narratives at work and different and different different kinds of people living in that environment. But my my parents live in a in a town where there's it's very working class. There's you know there's some some wealthy people there as well. But um, but there's some uh, there's some dark aspects to it. There's uh, oxycontin and meth production problem there, and I, I certainly think that my time in in Thailand has has broken up a lot of the way that I think about myself and think about my art and think about uh, where I come from. I'm just curious, though, if, if you were to go to uh, to my hometown and to try to paint uh, the truth of that of that town, um, would you feel like you you would try to use this this style and, and using color in this way, or would you would you find yourself actually sort of weirdly pulled toward an Andrew Wyeth style because of the the different way that surfaces and truth interact, or the different the different elements at play. The color palette is Southeast Asia. You know, no matter what I paint, have you seen my paintings of Buddha? I've done a Buddha series. You know, it's a very simple face, but it's got Southeast Asian colors like lime green, bright orange, pink. So, you know, you know it's in Southeast Asia, and somehow you know it's Buddha, even though you hardly you only see part of his face and you don't see any background because the color palette says Southeast Asia. So I think if it, I'm painting in Maine, I've done a couple of paintings in Maine. You know, the color palette changes so that you, it, it's a color palette of Maine. The subject of Maine, you know, you, you know I, I'm going to do a lot of ledges, islands, rocks that are out of the bays because I spent a lot of time out in the bays. I love being out in the islands which are not inhabited even. And what, you know, I, when I'm out there, you know, there's a lot of seals and birds and uh, Kind of it's like a little bit like Galapagos when you get to these really uninhabited islands. There's a lot of wildlife going on, a lot of breeding, a lot of territorial fighting. You know, it is kind of a Dar kind of a Darwinistic world out there in the rocks. The other thing that I feel when I'm out of the rocks, especially if I'm in a kayak where you're very low in the water and close up, is that wow, these rocks have been here forever. I mean, these rocks have been here since the amoebas. You know, since mankind crawled out of the amoebas, this that rocks right there, and and five million years from now. That rock's still going to be right there. Is is a different kind of primitive than Southeast Asia and the War primitive. Southeast Asia doesn't really have a lot of granite rocks, and it has almost nothing that doesn't change. Southeast Asia, the whole of Bangkok changing in front of our eyes. The whole of Phnom Penh, this 4,000 construction projects going on in Phnom Penh. I mean, the lives of everyone you meet. You know, the kids coming in from the countryside, changing to urban people. I mean, the, suddenly the Russians are here, or the Arabs are here. The, which reflects the changes going on in those parts of the world, or the South Asians are suddenly showing up here. Whereas the coast of Maine, is a, is a, I think the characteristic of the coast is permanence. There's a tremendous permanence, the sense of permanence there. And even the people who come in for the summer who are temporary in and out every summer, you know, the house they go to often, they treasure because of the same as it was when their great-grandfather went there. And the, the, the toy in the house is the same toy their great-grandmother used when she was a baby. You know, there's a kind of a sensibility towards permanence. But now that's the coast. Now inland Maine has noir. There's two Maines. The coast to me is not really noir because people are doing pretty, ordinary working people are doing pretty well. And there's a, there's a mix of population, rich retired people, middle class educated people with real jobs, ordinary working people who are making way above minimum wages and, and often own their own house. Uh, free public schools, you know, there's a little bit of homelessness, but not like, you know, not like Southern California or something, but you have 400,000 people wandering around. Inland Maine now is really different. There's like, it's totally different. 
Inland Maine is kind of Walmart Maine, trailer parks, Stephen King Maine. It has a real noir side to it. Have you, go to, you ever been to a Walmart in Maine? It's like you enter a different world from coastal Maine suddenly, don't you? Is that, is, is that, what, you would, is that what you would try to paint? <laughs> when I'm standing in line at Walmart, I've often said, wow, if I want to paint noir in Maine, set up the easel here. <laughs> you know, here's mom, here's dad, and here are the three kids, you know. And, uh, and they're all Trump voters, I'm sure. Do you think that if you painted the people in that Trump crowd saying those things, if you painted them in the, the style that you're painting them now, that, that, that many Americans would understand how to read and interpret that use of color and that the, the, the African mask style of, of depiction of faces, or do you think it would, or, or do you think Americans wouldn't know how to, to, to well, interpret I'm that? The, I'm starting with Trump and his core crew. You know, there'll be 20 or 30 paintings, the Trump team. You know, they're wearing a suit, and they went to Wharton, and we think they're civilized. But, you know, they're like, go back to the amoeba and the DNA, you know. Go back to Pat Punk portraits, who they really are, who they really are. You know, the thing about that line where, he, where Trump was uh, recorded saying, I like to grab him by the pussy, that's who Trump really is, you know. That's a very revealing line. I mean, and that's very, that's a Pat Pong line, man. I mean, that's, that's... Heart of Pat Pong. That's like some German guy with a 300-pound beer belly. Yeah, man, I love it here in Pat Pong. You just grab him by the pussy, you know. That's Trump, man. That's who he really is. And it's noir. It's noir. We're seeing it. You know, it's been sort of, a lot of it's been below the surface until the Trump phenomenon came along. And if you've watched videos of not Trump speaking, but video cameras that were in the crowds, of what people are doing in the crowds, wow. I mean, they didn't even put that stuff on network news. They didn't even put it on cable news because it was raw. I mean, it was people screaming at, at Mexican-Americans, bring me my burrito beaner. It was people, I mean, screaming at female reporters. I mean, it was, did you, have you seen some of that video? from the? I mean, it was, I mean, the noir is coming to the surface. Trump movement has enabled, it's like a volcano. It's enabled the noir to come up to the surface and start spewing out. And so that's, I think that's why I suddenly started painting, you know, American subjects suddenly. Having been in Southeast Asia and dealt with South Asian, Southeast Asian noir, I think, as opposed to my brother who spent his whole life in Maine, when I started watching this Trump phenomenon, I was back in the States uh, in March and started watching it closely, I saw it instantly. Whereas other people were saying, no, 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 no. And I have friends who are on the Hillary campaign, and I, and I told them, you got to watch out. There's, there's something happening here, and it's not pretty. Oh, no, no, no. He's, he's not going to be around. You know, it's like the Southeast Asian noir. Once you've been in Southeast Asia for a certain number of years, you've accumulated a certain knowledge and absorbed a certain knowledge of how humans function that other Americans and people from Western Europe, they don't know because they haven't been here. And they, have, and they haven't, you know, because we see it here so easily. You know, you, you can see it because it's visible. You know, and so, and so you become aware of what humans really are doing as opposed to what we pretend we're doing half the time. And that enables us when we go back to our home countries, it, we're changed now. We have a different point of view and a different sensibility. So bring, coming to Bangkok with uh, Western perceptions, um, when you get here, do you ever worry that your Western perceptions will sort of distort what you're trying to get the truth you're trying to reach through your work. 
Do you ever worry that there might be a filter? I mean, you're not there to be objective. And I think that whole idea of objective, you know, in this last news cycle of six months, I think has been totally debunked. Because on the one hand, Mexicans are racist and rapist. On the other hand, you know, I'm interested in maternity leave for women. I mean, there is no objectivity between those two points of view. And the whole American media system is trying, following this illusion of objectivity. So an artist, we're not news people. And a writer or a musician is not a, you know, we're not here to be objective. We're, what's interesting about an artist is their point of view. Now, you can reject their point of view. You can not buy the art, not look at the paintings. You can not buy the book, you know, not listen to the music. You know, up to you. But, you know, the success is if you take your point of view, your perception, process the raw material you're dealing with, and make something interesting and interesting out of, interesting out of it. You know, the worst crime in art is you make something that's not interesting. Art cannot be boring. Earlier you were talking about how you hadn't really seen any, or nobody had seen, Chris said he hadn't seen a lot of, or any, Thai painters or um, doing what you're doing. Um, since, have there been Thai people taking part in the Bangkok Noir style in, in painting and writing? There's five or six Thai painters who, are, who paint sort of expressionist style ugly stuff. Uh, Vassin being one of them, and then the guy who does Thai Smile being another one, and the guy who did the monks feeding off a bowl of gold. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the problem with Thai art is the role of art in Thai history is very different than the role of art in Europe. In, in, uh, in Thai history, the role of art was to revere and show veneration for those who are your betters and above you. So, you can probably guess the number one piece of Thai art in the whole of Thailand where there's 50 or 60 million copies of the single piece of art. So the other role for art was to make you happy, make you feel better, and to help you relax. So you end up with the art schools then. A third element is Thai art scene and gallery scene is controlled by high so ties on the whole. And often Thai Chinese high so ties. We don't have a lot of appreciation for rural ties, as you might know. And a lot of the best art in Thailand, really, from a street level, is, is coming from uneducated rural ties, like neon signs, uh, the big buses that have all those paintings on them, the tuk-tuk painting, uh, the boats, all the, sail, the fishing boats are painted. You know, the really interesting visual stuff you, you notice that catches your eye when you're walking around Thailand is often done by uneducated people who come from rural Thailand who have no art school background and have no, are not appreciated as artists or designers, which is quite different than New York or London or Berlin where a lot of art is coming off the street. Then you end up with the art schools in Thailand are very hierarchical. And the top of the hierarchy is Silpacorn. And Silpacorn is basically an elite Thai institution run and controlled by very, very wealthy Thai people, uh, royalist, anti-Chinese, millionaire, billionaire types. And their kids are basically the students there. There might be a couple of kids from the provincial parts of Thailand, but basically the schools, to, if you go down to the campus, it's dominated by spoiled rich kids. All right, so you've got all that background. And then what they teach them at Silpacorn is make 
art that's beautiful, that's pretty, that helps people feel good, that helps people relax, sabai sabai, that shows reverence for people above you who are higher up, and shows respect, and shows your veneration, and shows humility. So it's a disaster for real art, basically. All those things come together. You end up with a lot of art that's being made in Bangkok, which is a big city, visually rich city, in a, in a pretty good-sized country, and a lot of the art's really boring. In Europe, art should be provocative. It should stimulate people. It should upset people. It should make people angry. It should change, be an agent of change. It should uh, be insulting. You know, it should not show veneration. It should not be res respectful, especially overly respectful. It should not uh, place the artist in the role of uh, supplicant before the rich and powerful. Because the goal of the Western artist is art should be a kind of a change agent, not all of Western art, not Kincaid, certainly. Yeah, high sotizers do not like my paintings and don't like my art because it deconstructs their fairy tale about Thailand. Yeah, can you can you unpack that a little bit? Like, what what are they what are they responding to, and what do you hear in those in in those reactions from from high so ties? Thai artists look at it and say, "Wow, that's ugly, man." And a few of them say, "It's great, I love it, it's ugly." But a lot of them say, a lot of them say, uh, "Wow, it's so offensive," you know. And then high so's who've come to my shows, Thai high so's say, "You're a bad farang. You're a really bad farang. Why are you painting these ugly paintings of Thailand?" They said, I'm just painting what's there. It deconstructs the alternate reality that they have written for themselves about Thailand as land of smiles, as a tranquil, meditative Buddhist kingdom with a sufficiency economy, where people are very spiritual and respectful, where everyone agrees and goes by the caste rules, you know, bowing to those above them and, and making people below them bow to them. And, you know, it, it, my paintings contradict their narrative they're, and, they are, and they're offensive to their narrative and the truth be told I don't like their narrative so I don't care I'm curious if you feel like your work is um, subverting uh, Thai art hierarchies yeah. as a western artist firmly in the western tradition of art I think the role of art is to question accepted reality and the accept, accepted narratives I think the role of art is to help the human animal stay awake, wake up, don't fall asleep, don't be passive, get angry, be active. Those are all positive values of Western art and for a lot of Western artists. Those, just by being there, just like a lot of Western culture and politics, just by being there, uh, contradicts a lot of what goes on in Southeast Asia. Not because it's aimed at Southeast Asia, necessarily, but just because it's, it's quite different than what goes on and what is accepted as normal in Southeast Asia. Now, we're living in Bangkok, which is one of the nicest parts of Southeast Asia. But a few hundred miles to our west, they're rounding up a million people and basically trying to kill them in Western Burma, Western Myanmar. The, the Burma army is using machine guns on villages, burning them to the ground. They're raping women. They're killing the men. They're killing children. They're putting, they're putting people in concentration camps. They're trying to get them 
to self-deport on boats to Malaysia or to flee across the border to Bangladesh. They're basically running a full-scale ethnic cleansing campaign a few hundred miles to the west of us in a country called Myanmar, where the, for 50 years now, they've had endless civil war between different ethnic groups. The armies has had a campaign of rape in ethnic territories in order to, to dilute the population of the ethnic groups. They've used child soldiers. I mean, it's pretty much flat out noir. Okay, that's to the west of us. Straight to the east of us is Cambodia, where I just, I just was and where I've done some paintings and had a show, where 30 years ago, they more or less murdered 25% of the entire population. In the U.S. context, that would be as if they murdered 75 million people. They murdered everybody who had a college degree, everybody who was a dentist or a doctor, everybody who wore eyeglasses, everybody who spoke a foreign language. They murdered little children. They murdered grandmothers. They murdered ethnic minorities, the Cham Muslim minority, the Vietnamese minority, some of the Hill Tribe minorities. The people who ran that campaign were backed by U.S., Thailand, and China. The people who stopped that campaign were basically the Vietnamese army. So it, it's just a cauldron of noir. So I think in contrast with this world that I'm living in, in which we're living in here in Southeast Asia, a lot of stuff in the West, like the idea of free speech, open debate, rule of law, police and government working for the citizens, art that's offensive and abrasive. A lot of the ideas of the West are kind of in contradiction and, and in opposition to a lot of what is considered normal in Southeast Asia. Not by intent, but just because it is that way. Have you, have, have you experienced people trying to directly censor your work, or have you felt any inclination to self-censor yourself? My ultimate goal is to have paintings that are well-known and hanging in galleries and museums in New York, London, Paris, Berlin. So, in a way, whether they get banned in Bangkok or Southeast Asia makes no difference to me. You know, because there is no Metropolitan Museum of Art in Bangkok anyway. You know, and most of the galleries here, are not, they're not major world galleries. In fact, none of them are. There are galleries here run by basically high so ties who won't take my work even though they like it. Anyway, there's a gallery very close to here actually, which is a high so woman's gallery. And you know, she's had like the ex-prime minister Anand have a show there with his paintings and like every high so known to Thailand was in that one opening. So she's like pretty high so mainstream and uh, nice gallery. Close to, you know, I, I make all my paintings right over here couple of blocks from the gallery and uh, right next to a gallery it's in a shop house or gallery right next door separated by a shop house wall which is probably eight inches thick is one of the most famous Japanese massage places in Bangkok which is in all the Japanese business guys guidebooks of what to do in the Bangkok night and I don't know if you're gonna censor this it's famous as the inventor or the first marketer of the Japanese balls massage that's what it's famous for Every once in a while, they put a little sign out on the sidewalk, and the sign has a little menu on it listing different things, including balls massage, X amount. That's right next to this lady's gallery. <laughs> there are 50 Thai girls working in there, 
and mainly Japanese customers owned by a Japanese guy. Every once in a while, they, the sign gets shoved down the sidewalk a little bit right in front of her gallery. And you'll see a Japanese guy walk into the gallery and say, is this where I get a balls massage? Anyway, so I'm in having a conversation with this lady. Nice Thai lady, speaks perfect English. She says, I love your paintings, Chris, but I can't really put them in my gallery. I mean, look at it. It's, you know, a beautiful gallery. It's tasteful. You know, the audience, you know, it's, they're, they're just too offensive. And I said to her, putting my hand on the wall, I said, eight inches on the other side of my hand is a Japanese guy getting a balls massage. And you're saying you can't put a painting? of a nightclub on this wall, eight inches away, and she freaked out. Stop, stop. I can't think that way. If I thought that way, I couldn't stay here. And it was an illuminating moment for me, because I said, ah, because a lot of Thais, they kind of, they're oblivious to the nightlife business. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a survival mechanism for respectable Thais to pretend it's not there in order to get through their day. And she has to pretend that her really nice gallery is not right next door to Bangkok's most famous Japanese balls massage place. <laughs> Otherwise, she couldn't come to work every day. And she couldn't have her openings, and she couldn't hang the art. and She would just not, she'd have to move. So my art disrupts her world of pretend. And, and if you look at a lot of Thai high, so higher-end Thai culture, pretend is very important. You know, they do a lot of pretending. It's very important to how they construct their narrative and their world. They have to pretend a lot of things are not there, a lot of things are not true, in order, in order to maintain their narrative. And my paintings, you know, I don't get offended when they won't put them in their gallery, because I understand, yeah, in their world, uh, my paintings are, are kind of dangerous, you know, and the people they bring, want to bring to their gallery do not want to buy my paintings or put them in their living rooms for a reason, for a good reason. How have the different coups that you've witnessed living here, how have they affected, or have they affected your work? Oh, I've done, I've done quite a few paintings of uh, political figures in Thailand. I have a, a series called uh, The Golden Boy and His Crew, I think, which is about Abbasid, Sutep, and all the people, Corn. I was here in 2010 and had a lot of friends who just on a Saturday afternoon, they were covering a demonstration for no particular reason, but just because there was this demonstration going on, who then suddenly it became this huge, unbelievably violent event that was going on for four, four solid hours. And I was watching CNN and the government spokesman, Paniton, said, yeah, it's all under control. There's no live firing, everything's good. And you know, that was when Twitter was first starting. And I had friends, uh, Nick Nostitz and Nirmal Gosh, and people who are actually right there. And uh, there's that Polish-German guy who was just a backpacker at that time. What's his name? He's now a journalist. And he was there with his video on his phone, you know, at one of the monuments where there was just hundreds of bullets. I mean, a bullet, like a guy next to him got killed, and the guy over here, and he was just there with his phone. So in 2010, you know, snipers on the roof and that uh, journalist guy knew they shot him three times big guy Canada guy did you see that the footage you know they shot him once he's all cameras all around him he's a journalist Farang journalist he shot him once he went down okay maybe it was an accident he's down on the ground they shot him twice hmm that's not an accident 
And boom, they shot him a third time. I said, wow, they want to kill this guy. And this is like guys up on rooftops with military equipment. Where was, where, where was he standing when that happened? Oh, somewhere around, you know, where it was all going on. This was, this was during was the, the was 2010 uh, red, crackdown on the red shirt, red shirt occupation. He wasn't right in the middle of it like the Polish Sherman guy or like uh, Nick Nostitz or he was, you know, back sort of with the press. They wounded, well, they killed the Japanese camera guy and they, I think they killed uh, a couple of journalists. They wounded 10 or 15, I think. Then I was up at um, Northern Bangkok the day there, that huge thing went on next to the IT mall up there. Remember that? They, they suddenly, the, the red shirts were doing one of their vehicle marches and they were all driving motorcycles and vehicles up to some cemetery in northern Bangkok to have a, you know, just a speech basically. No, nothing violent. And they suddenly decided almost for no reason they were not going to let them do it. And so they blocked that highway going north of Bangkok, which is the main commuting highway to the suburbs. And, uh, you know, as many lanes, when you get up about five miles, there's about like eight or nine or ten lanes going both ways. And they just blocked all of them. I mean, they didn't even lock, like, walk, you know, just, just block the whole thing, which meant all the people commuting home, everyone got stopped. So now, were you up there that day? I just happened to be up there. So every, all the cars, they can't get off. They're there. So it's mom with two kids. It's the business guy, dad, with his briefcase. You know, it's not just red shirt guys. It's like the whole world sitting up there, blocked, stopped in their cars. And uh, they just open up on them. Snipers, guys on rooftops. I mean, they must have fired thousands of shots. I don't know, if, remember that day? And then the police sent, the police, you know, own their own motorcycles. They buy their own, so their motorcycles aren't the same often. And they sent up, 10 or 15 police went up there to, to help the army out. And they, uh, they didn't, they made a mistake. They thought the, the police on motorcycles were red shirts coming at them. They started shooting them. Do you remember that day? They killed a couple of police. And it was all like on live TV. You don't remember? And, and ties, ties are curious. So they were all out of the shopping center and they're all up on these overpass, pedestrian overpass bridges. Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. And they were getting wounded because there were so many bullets going on. I mean, people on the bridges were getting wounded. And then people in the cars, you know, shots would go into the front window of the car. I mean, it was, wow, it was pretty hardcore. So I think, yeah, I think if you were here in 2010, it definitely, I mean, if you've never been around that kind of stuff, as a lot of people in the West never have, it uh, is what you think is normal and possible. So we're at, a, we're at, a, at another moment. We're gonna, we should finish up and let you go because you've got a day of painting ahead of you, no doubt. We're at another moment of, of huge change in Thailand. How are you wrapping your head around the, the, the present moment and what is in store for, for the country and, and your, own, your own sense of being here? I, I know a lot of people in Thailand, including uh, Thai politicians. And I would say the, the moment of change was uh, 2014, May, and now there is no change. So the, the coup? Right, that was the change and that uh, they overthrew the fifth election in the space of 14 years, including that last election, which was more or less a landslide. I think the margin of victory was 20%. That was the moment of change. What we're seeing now has not changed. It's just exactly the same. And the, in my view is that the next five, 10 years is exactly the same. 
I want your viewers to Google Bangkok Noir and see what a monster we've created. <laughs> you could get hundreds of thousands of hits if you Google Bangkok Noir today. Really taken off. Their event, uh, it's taught in some universities. Which is two guys. <laughs> Just two goofballs. <laughs> Google German Expressionism. I mean, you know, the world is created by the people who create it. It's not sitting there with everything all written out in stone before you arrived. So I would encourage your listeners, you know, who are writers, poets, journalists, students, wherever they are, the world is created by the people who make the effort to create it. I like that. If people want to find out more about you and not uh, all of the other uh, all of the other copycats who are now in the Bangkok Noir movement, if they want to if they want to, you know, get to the OG, what? How do they find you online? Uh, BangkokNoir.com. So you just got to put the .com on that search, and then you're <laughs> you're there. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking all this time and talking with us. It's been great, and thank you for. Uh, Doing what you do in Bangkok, the two of you. You really are like an originator. You have BangkokNoir.com. Years before I had ever moved to Bangkok. Yeah. I have I have GermanExpressionism.com, so you guys are suckers. <laughs> so in that interview, I found it kind of interesting that he echoed some of the things we've heard before from Gio, Sam, Poupe, Note about the success of certain kinds of artists in Thailand, um, particularly those mm-hmm. who show reverence for the nation's governing institutions. It seems from what Chris said and yeah. from what previous guests have said, if you make art that shows respect for um, the Buddhist faith or for you're more likely to succeed than artists who sort of work outside of I guess these institutions right. outside of these these pillars of Thai society right um, so I found that I found that interesting that we keep hearing about that um, it keeps coming up I guess I'm not surprised that that a um, that a foreigner, who paints in the tradition of the Fovis and the German Expressionists <laughs> painting uh, the nightlife of of Europe and the the prostitutes thereof does not you know does not find that his work has a natural <laughs> has a natural you know as as he as he endeavors to paint the uh, the Bangkok night the, the this certain underbelly uh, granted a very neon and very colorful underbelly of the city that it's not on the one hand it's not very surprising to me that his paintings uh, aren't received you know <laughs> with, with welcome arms by an establishment that's trying to uphold a particular vision of the city um, but you're right it's interesting that, that that he's finding that as he's engaging in this deliberately challenging art form and then we also hear that as you say from everybody from node who's a party organizer and comic book yeah. artist to who pay uh, as a as a dancer and performer and some as an as a art gallery owner and Gio as a as somebody running a library that they're all seeing it from these different <laughs> angles, you know? Um, yeah. And then, you know, when uh, I'm thinking back to when we were interviewing uh, Pan Pan, the, the mm. drag queen Pangina heels talking about, you know, the, the, the upper class desire for propriety 
Mm-hmm. That definitely, you know, was was echoed in what Chris was saying about the, you know, that the desire for propriety conflicting with the darker yeah. reality of Bangkok, and and, he, and I think he he was getting at a little bit of a different contrast in, in talking about the the surfaces that are mm-hmm. sold through the spectacle of the the Bangkok night and what mm-hmm. those hide behind them in terms of that reality, um, and there there are other surfaces uh, that Chris also um, alluded to that the um, that the establishment, the Bangkok establishment, um, wants to put forward as as the reality of of uh, life in Thailand. Um, yeah. So it was, it was interesting to. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious whether actually whether Chris has ever painted Pan Pan. We should put them together. Yeah, we should. They should connect. Yeah, and yeah, we should. should and up. we should get that painting. We should. <laughs> yeah. Can hang it on my wall here, so I can look at that and then gaze out at the uh, the foxes <laughs> in the snowy field. We can. We can. Uh, have it screen printed on shirts. There you go. Oh, now we're talking. Patreon gift. Yeah, there yeah. we go. <laughs> hey, good Let's idea, make it happen. Donald. Good idea. Yeah. I, all, I I do wish though. I do wish we had gotten a clear definition of what Bangkok noir is. I know noir. I think of I think of a private detective trying to solve a mystery. But what does noir mean specifically when applied to Chris's paintings? That with that label. Um, and he, I think he tried his best to to explain it, but I'm wondering if is noir really just to him like a, a interchangeable word for darkness or something unsavory, or what is what what does it actually mean to him? Mm-hmm. Bangkok noir. What what is the definition? That's 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 true. And I've, I mean, we talk about it a little bit, but I think in in some of his mm-hmm. writings in his book and in other interviews, I think he talks about how you know he sees again, as he would call it, Bangkok noir uh, reflected in things happening outside of Bangkok or outside of, you know, the yeah. the yeah. Uh, the Rohingya uh, refugee crisis um, and migration crisis. I think I read him, he referred to it as sort of yeah. reflective of the Bangkok noir. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I think there's part of that. On the one hand, I appreciate the sort of the idea of like taking artistic principles and theories and sort of looking out and sort of applying them. But it does, as you say, it, it, there's something about it of sort of being too much of a catch-all for, as you, mm-hmm. as you say, darkness or the unsavory his his focus is upon um this particular collection of people that occupy um or that that i don't know live most fully or live most live of a particular time kind of life after dark and in this particular part of the city but i think i think i don't know and i I appreciated that at another point he also was very clear about you know (laughs) an art movement is is a movement because people call it that and perpetuate it and work to uh, advocate that. for it. You know, so I appreciated that he's yeah. he's a, you know he's a he's a committed painter and he's he's got mm-hmm. his vision, but he also knows that it's also about how you sell it uh, as well. So yeah. I really appreciated. I appreciated that, that as well. Yeah, that um, was great. Yeah. Um, I guess I will also just it's just worth. Uh, I suppose it's something that perhaps we should have put at the put at the front of the hour but um i admitted that to, to and he speaks to this he speaks to this at certain points in the interview where he talks about how sometimes he's he's accused of of being obscene and painting um you know those paintings are inappropriate um and i admit that 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 before the interview i had imagined we might talk a little bit more about some of the like some of the some of the moral or ethical implications 
of that world that he is painting. I mean, he, we, we had amazing conversation about, about so many different aspects of it. Um, yeah. And I think he gave us a really honest and vivid understanding of the, the reality of the, the life that's lived by the, 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 the people that work in those, those bars, whether they're managers or musicians or sex workers. But I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we didn't get as deep into some of the the more sort of moral questions of yeah. of that of that industry and um, and what I mean again I, I probably because it's a super complicated <laughs> it's a super yeah. complicated subject but I, I do wish that we'd gotten a little bit more into that because because I don't I don't think his paintings are obscene or I don't think they're inappropriate but they do they do certainly ask us to look into this world and ask some questions uh, about human intimacy about uh, yes. human relationships about about sex about money for sex about you know about all the the larger that ecosystem of uh, values and behaviors so i don't know i don't know if if anything's what do you think about that? Do you think we should have totally. done that? <laughs> yeah. yeah i i actually was expecting us to get into more of those things i can't say that the the opportunity didn't present itself um appreciated when he talked about some of the motivations behind why women uh totally women choose yeah, yeah, yeah. this yeah. life yeah but i i imagined before we had the interview that we would talk or touch on the fact that a lot of times it's not about choice choice had nothing to do with it mm-hmm. he he talked about like a you know this uh caricature of the the poor isan girl who comes to the city because farming is harder. But there's so much more. I feel like there's a lot more to it to the point where this this is something that happens over and over again. It's 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 um, this character that we are used to hearing about, to seeing this, this poor brown girl with the sixth grade education. Okay, okay, but what created the, the circumstances that would lead this poor girl with the sixth grade education to to do this and for her friends to do it and for mm-hmm. the generation after her to do it and after and so on and so on and so on. What breeds this? Mm-hmm. And then we didn't even get into sex slavery. We we didn't get into topics like that. Yeah. Um, so there, um, yeah. there's a lot to the Bangkok nightlife. Uh, yeah, it's noir, but it's... it's uh, I feel like there are a lot of aspects of it that are so much darker. Yeah. So we could, we could, there's lots that we could continue to, we could continue to uh, say here. Those are some of our reflections on uh, this podcast, but we'd obviously love to hear yours. So please, uh, if you listen to the podcast and, uh, and loved it or, or didn't love it as much or have thoughts and, or feels, I'm sure you had thoughts and feels uh, about what we were talking about. Please share them uh, on Twitter and uh, our Facebook page. And we just want to thank Chris Coles for taking the time to be interviewed at Brainwake uh, and for the copies of his book that he gave us. We also want to thank the, the staff that day for being so accommodating um, of us and all of our podcasting equipment. You can find links to uh, Chris Cole's work and more information about his paintings on our website, poetinbangkok.com. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to hear what we're up to in Bangkok or Maine, or just what we're thinking about the Harbinger as it barrels toward uh, Earth at sub-whale speed. Lord. Uh, If you like the podcast, 
please consider giving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us uh, reach new listeners. And if you like what we're doing here and you want to support us, uh, you can, as I mentioned, go to patreon.com slash poet in Bangkok or follow the link from our website. And by giving us uh, just a couple of bucks per episode, uh, you can get yourself a t-shirt with Donald and Colin on Mars drawn by Kathy McLeod from episode one. Uh, and for a larger donation, we'll even bring you on the show to uh, talk about uh, art. Um, Japanese ball massage. For example, or <laughs> Captain <laughs> Raymond Shepard and the crew of the Harbinger 2. Whatever. Uh, but we really do appreciate all our Patreon backers <laughs> and uh, would love your support if you're able to uh, find a little bit of New Year money uh, to do so. For our Patreon backers, we there's a special little piece of the interview that we weren't able to include about uh, Chris's uh, time working on the production of Superman uh, in, the, it's awesome. in the late 70s. It's an amazing, amazing little story. Uh, and if you become a Patreon backer, you will get to listen to that little snippet um, as well. Yeah. So, uh, A great story about the indie hit <laughs> Superman. <laughs> exactly. That little known uh, Bangkok noir <laughs> art film. Uh, Proto Bangkok noir. Um, <laughs> and thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and has written us about it, supported us on Patreon. Um, we really appreciate it. And thanks to those who have said nice things about us online. You're the best. Thanks to Anna and Pete for their continued support. And to Isotope for the great sound editing software. Thanks to Martin Pavlinich and his band Reports for our music. Tell your friends about us, whether they are into comics, poetry, filmmaking, rock bands, or just quirky podcasts in this era of missions to Mars. And whether you live in Bangkok or Bangor, Kathmandu or Gainesville, we hope you'll keep listening to what we get up to here on Poet in Bangkok. Later, guys. We'll see you next time. <laughs>